I've been devouring Halloween candy like an impulsive fucking animal. I bought a bag of the Wonka candy. You know the one. The one that they sell for $13 at Walgreens. Maybe you saw it there too, but you had the self-control not to buy it, which I commend you for. Me? I don't have that self-control. I'm extremely impulsive. I thought maybe I'll get this Halloween candy and we'll actually have trick-or-treaters this year. Or maybe I'll pass it out to my riders, do an Uber and Lyft and all that jazz. I didn't do that. It was all a lie. I knew what my destiny was with this candy. I've been eating through this fucking bag. I started out with the grape nerds and the strawberry nerds. Then I moved on to the Laffy Taffy, strawberry and banana. And then I got to the sweet tarts and now I'm at the gobstoppers. I like the gobstoppers. I've always been a big fan of them, but they fuck up your teeth. So be careful. I'm sensitive about my teeth. You know, if you've listened to the podcast in the past, I've talked a little bit about it. I had a missing tooth. So there's some trauma associated with that for me. But I digress. This Saturday, November 13th, I will be playing bass with Violet Moons at the Dive Motel. The Dirty Delusions will be headlining the show. We will be celebrating the birthday of today's guest, Aaron Billiot. We will also be celebrating the release of the new single by the Dirty Delusions called Alone, which can be heard at the end of this podcast. There will be a couple different vendors there as well, including Local Oblivion, Thriftly Beast, Trippy Toes Dies, and New Berlin Eats. Also on Saturday, I will be playing in Clarksville at the Color Book with the Strange Siblings, a.k.a. the Weird Sisters. I'm super pumped for this gig. Uh, Show starts at 7, so come on out if you happen to be in the Clarksville area or you're in Nashville and you feel like driving on the highway, a beautiful scenic route on a fall day. Both shows will be outdoors. Make sure you don't pee in the pool. Time to get rid of the filters. Make my life my favorite movie. Live in my favorite character. Write my own script. Direct my own story. Be my biography. Make my own documentary on me. Nonfiction. Live. Not recorded. Time to catch that hero I've been chasing. See if the sun will melt the wax that holds my wings or if the heat is just a mirage. Live my legacy now. Quit acting like me. Be me. And today we have Aaron Billiot from The Dirty Delusions. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I've been reading this Matthew McConaughey book uh, for like the past month, you know, just kind of before I go to bed at night. And it's really had a profound effect on me. And that, that passage right there, it, it makes me feel something. I'm not sure what. Just this, this embrace of doing it full scale. When yeah. I was younger, I really felt like I was chasing success. You know, the idea of success, success. That's what I want. I want success with music, success with women. And I realized it was a misplaced feeling because what I'm really chasing is enlightenment. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, um, I really like that passage a lot. Because, um, you know, as a musician, I've been in Nashville 10 years now. And, uh, yeah, when you first move here, I, at least with me, I feel like I was very naive. And it it, uh, it was all about, you know, well, I want to be successful. I want to be really successful at what I'm doing, um, which I think is a good thing. Um but yeah, I think you're right in saying that it's misplaced uh, because, you know, you want to be your best self. You want to be your best, you know, you want to be the best person you can be. And, uh, you know, sometimes success can become an obsession. Your passions can get, become an obsession. Yes. Um, and I think that that can be very uh, harming to what you're trying to do, you know, Um I'm still kind of soaking that passage in. I yeah, really like it, though. Yeah, yeah. no. It's the I, first I've heard that. I, I feel the same way. You know, I think it's just such a broad and loose term, success. Because mm-hmm. really what, what success is, you have to define it on your own terms. You know, because I, I always thought when I was younger, oh, I'll have a hit record by the time I'm 25, or yeah. I'll have a million dollars by the time I'm 30. Well, yeah. I turned 30 on the 18th. So that ain't going to fucking happen unless right. a miracle happens. <laughs> right. But it's like with time, I, 
I really feel like I'm chasing the uh, the purity now of whatever the experience is of a this existence and b music, right? Creating art, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, that's what it comes down to: making the art. Because I mean, everything else is really just a sales pitch if you think about it. I mean, we live in a time right now where you know you almost have to be an influencer, like a social media influencer, to you know keep your name relevant. And I mean, that's something that I think we all do. I mean, you with your podcast and with bands and myself with the band as well. And it's an important thing to do, but you can never forget that it's really just about the art and about creating. I mean, that's why you do what you do. Um, well, yeah. well, now we're having to become our own labels. Right. And throughout history... Artists have always crashed with the business side of the music business. Sure, sure. And it's not something that comes natural to a lot of us. It's something I, I struggle with, you know. I Sure, yeah. I feel like the best way for me to to do it is, is just by sitting down and, like, deciding what I'm going to post on Instagram and all that shit and keeping that time separate from creative time. Mm-hmm. And, like, the, the past couple of days, I, I've noticed that through the past couple of weeks, I've been, I've had spiritual malnourishment. You know, I haven't been doing the things I know I need to do for myself in order to feel good. Right. Which is like yoga, meditation, all stuff that, that helps me stay creative. And that creativity is what helps me feel a lifeline to this world. Otherwise I don't have it. And I cut sure. it off. Sure. And I just go into this dark place where I get super introverted and I'm not naturally like that. You know, I don't want to really talk to anybody or be around anybody. And it really, uh, it's really challenging for me to, cause you, you have to do these things to keep yourself moving. I have to do these things to keep myself moving in order to stay in a good, happy, healthy mental place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel the same way. Um, you definitely kind of get into that spot if you, you know, Spend too much thinking about, spend too much time thinking about the wrong things. Um, when I was mentioning like sales pitch and stuff like that, I feel like we've been fed so many different things of like, you know, what success is, um, you know, and by society's standards, you know, success is making that million dollars, being super famous, reaching out to all these different people. But, you know, it's not really about that. It's about you and it's about you being healthy and in a, a good mental spot, um, yeah, and that's what really spoke to me about that passage is, you know, you've got somebody like Matthew McConaughey who's found that success and, uh, you know, he's working on himself. I think it's a super meta way of looking at life and I think it's it's kind of the way of looking at life maybe, you know? Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I think really no one teaches you how to be out in the world. Like no. you just graduate high school and then like I didn't go to college. Yeah. So I was just out in the world figuring right, it out. Right. And, you know, I had the help of my dad, and he would give me the best guidance he could. Sure. Um, and all of that. But you go through all these trials and tribulations of, of dating, playing gigs, writing songs, mm-hmm. bands getting together, bands breaking up, breaking up with girlfriends. Right. All that shit. Right. And what I found is that in 50% of any situation, I tried to make it, okay, this failed at least Half because of me. You know, anytime something doesn't work out, it was half my fault. Sure. Of something I wasn't aware of, like some uh, some primordial thing that's in me uh, based on childhood, culture, society, whatever you want to call it. Uh, nature versus nurture, the classic argument. Mm-hmm. And just going down that path of like, okay, what... That, that, that helps me sleep at night because otherwise I, I can't fucking sleep. Yeah. I'll stay up all night thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. You know, I, I, I have those sleepless nights as well. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. What do you do to keep yourself in a good mental place? Um, with me, it's just I, I, I do a lot of free writing. Um, you know, maybe not even sitting down with the intention of writing a song or, you know, doing anything creative like that. But, you know, if I've got something that's, uh, you know, on my mind that's putting me in a bad spot, I'll just kind of start writing. And, you know, whatever comes out, I'll just write it, and I might not even read it back. And that, that, that really seems to 
act as a sort of therapy for me, you know, because um, it's something that I can do that's completely personal and it's completely just me. Like there doesn't have to be any output or input rather from anybody else. Um, just free riding. That's something that I've done since I was a kid. As long as I can remember, I've always done that. Right. Um, uh, just writing songs or do you do other creative things as well? Um, really, I mean, most of the time when I'm free riding, it's not even a song. It's just writing, just raw writing. Um, and whatever comes out. And yeah, uh, this last record that we put out, uh, Too Young for Love, I would say 98% of those songs came from, you know, some of my free writing and just kind of my inner, my inner monologue with myself, I suppose. Um, and I didn't even realize that until it was done and people started telling me, you know, how they perceive the song. And I was like, oh yeah, well, I guess, I guess that was something that I needed to get out. But, you know, it, it was never contrived that way. A lot of it just came from, you know, being kind of in a bad mental spot and needing to get some things out and just writing just raw thoughts and, you know, sometimes going back to those and sometimes it would become a song. Sometimes I'd never read it again. Just that's always just kind of helped me. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I'm a, I like, uh, writing too. Um, I'm a pretty big fan of it. Uh, it's like I have a couple journals, you know, journals and journals filled with just my thoughts. Mm -hmm. I hope nobody ever sees that shit. Oh, I'm the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I almost think that I'm going to make a new ritual of every time I get one done, I'm going to, uh, like, burn them. Yeah. Just so, that, like, it existed in that moment, and that's it. Sure. It was coming out of me. I let it out of me, and then that's an interesting. Gone. That's interesting that you say that. So, um... I recently watched, uh, for like the third time, The Last Dance on Netflix. It's about uh, Michael Jordan and the Bulls team and everything. Yeah, and that night, Yeah, that 97 season. And I remember uh, at the end of the season, they all knew that they weren't coming back. And the coach, he told everybody to bring something personal, something that meant something to them. And you said you've, you've seen it. Yeah. And like uh, they – just had like a big drum and they set it on fire. And I think Michael Jordan like read a poem and they all just threw something in and then they, they departed. And that was the last time that they, you know, were in that locker room. That was the last time they, they were in that thing. And I was uh, speaking with Hux on our way to a gig this last weekend. He's our other guitar player. Um, and we were talking about that, just about things that we've held on to in life, be it writing, be it something personal that, you know, might, be a toxic memory at this point, like might be something that you don't need in your life anymore. And we were talking about that ritual and, you know, maybe that being a good thing to do like as a band, you know? Yeah. Um, letting it go. Just letting something go, letting something go. That's, you know, eating away at you. That's not helpful to you. Yes. You resentment. Know? Exactly. Exactly. I, I found the biggest fucking poison to my spirit is resentment. Whatever it can be, and it could be resentment of, uh, you know, something a, a traumatic that happened to you that you blame someone else for, a breakup. It can be your roommate not washing dishes, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I try and get it out of me as quickly as possible. Yeah. I don't like hanging on to shit. Sure. Because when I start hanging on to shit, I start to go off the rails. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's true. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. I have it really does no good to hang on to things, especially things that you can't control. I think that's the biggest thing. Like, I think that's, that's one of the biggest hang, hang ups of, you know, anybody is, you know, resenting something that they have no control over, yeah. you know, and the best thing to do about it is just to get rid of it, just to cut it out of your life, regardless what that means. <laughs> that was a tool that I really had to learn in my mid twenties, uh, to let shit go. And mm -hmm. I, I'm still not perfect at it. You know, I, I like hanging on to shit and just being like, well, so-and-so said this or so-and-so did this. And yeah. uh, it was a skill I had to acquire. Sure. I sure. didn't know how to do it. Yeah. No one ever taught me how to do it. I feel like for, for men in our society, we're not really taught how to deal with our emotions. We're just told to, to shove it down, you know? Right. Um, and I think that's that's very harmful. I think a lot of the problems in the world can be traced back to that because you look at everything's happening: school shootings, rape, all that shit is done done by men. You know, mm -hmm. um, 
and there's something in our nature that aggressive that drive that you have to learn how to hone or, or else it can be something that gets out of whack you know totally you could say it's the same thing that happened to hitler like sure. he, uh in harry potter the sorting hat says uh you're uh capable of great but terrible things yeah Do you, uh, have you seen harry potter i have yeah. i have yeah um, and I think that's very philosophical because I think anybody who is capable of greatness is also capable of those ter- terrible things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like you were talking about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan in another life, he could have been, if, if the circumstances didn't line up right, he could have been another Hitler, you know? That's very true. I mean, look at the, <laughs> he was able to turn a team, or, a team around. But on top of that, like, I mean, he became this icon for being so focused on this one thing, on this one thing, on basketball. But yeah, you're absolutely right. If he would have taken that focus and, you know, put it somewhere else, I mean, could have been really bad. That's how could have been fucked. happens. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I loved that fucking documentary. Just seeing how uh, psychopathic he was yes. in his pursuit of greatness. Absolutely. Total obsession. Yeah. <laughs> and I mentioned obsession before, but, you know, with him, it was like this, this razor focus on uh, this focus on what he was doing. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's a sacrifice that comes along with being that obsessed, though. And Absolutely. I think he would probably even say the same thing. It comes at the sacrifice of, like, personal relationships. Right. You have to block everything else out to be that great. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, that's something that I think um, anybody that's a creative, anybody that has that kind of mind kind of struggles with. Um, in my personal situation, like, I, I'm a family man. Like, I have a family at home and everything like that. And you have to find a balance between that life and, you know, your creative life. You can combine these things, um, but there's a really fine line. There's a balance, you know, to keep everything running smoothly. You know, I... I uh, Luckily, my wife is a school teacher and I run sound, so we're on opposite schedules. So I get to be with my son all day long, and I think that's been also very therapeutic and very helpful to, you know, just my, you know, mental well-being is having that. Um, Because it gives me something else to focus on. Um, And, I mean, in this case, it's it's raising a child, and (laughs) it's it's, it's a very... uh, it's a very stressful thing. Like it gives me a lot of anxiety hoping that I'm doing it right. But, uh, you know, but in you having that anxiety, it means that you're probably a good parent for that very fucking reason. You sure. Know what I sure. Mean? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're aware of it. I have to remind myself of that. Yeah. Like, you know, it's <laughs> because there are a lot of people in, you know, this music industry that, uh, don't do that so well. And that's always kind of something that's in the back of my mind as well. You know, it's always something that uh, um, I remember. I've got a story. Like when I first uh, went to SAE, one of the first weeks we were there, um, we had a very, very influential and pretty prominent instructor. Um, He worked for Hal Blaine um, for years and years, like writing the tutorials for like bass and drums and engineering, all that stuff. And uh, he was out of L.A. and like had all kinds of Pulitzer Prizes and just all kinds of different things for all this writing that he'd done. And for some reason, somebody in the class, this like little asshole in the class was like, well, what else do you do? Do you have any hobbies? And he's like, no, this is my life. Like music is my life. This is what I do. And then somebody was like, well, do you have a family? And he's like, yeah, but we're not going to talk about that. And he's like, well, do you have a kid? And he's like, yeah, but I don't know him. And that always stuck with me. I was like, wow, that's incredibly depressing. Like you've got all these accolades and all these success stories, but yet you're a very unhappy person. Like, you know, you could just tell by the look in his eyes, like he wanted so much more from life. So, you know, that was when I first moved to Nashville and I've been a musician, you know, my entire life. But when I moved to Nashville, you know, it was when I was really buckling down and really wanting to, you know, figure out what I wanted to do with it. And uh, that's always stuck with me. I was like, you know, <laughs> I I will always have that balance. Like, that's just part of the passion for me, you know. Uh, and we're probably kind of slipping off a little bit. But, like, uh, yeah. Um, How did you feel when you found out you were going to become a father? Like, what were those emotions like? <laughs> it, it was funny, actually, because we had just moved into a really trendy apartment in East Nashville. And my wife and I were both very, very excited about, like, 
living in this hip place and like going to pool parties and stuff like that. And then we found out that we were pregnant. So it was really scary for the first couple of weeks. And then we just kind of fell into it. And now, honestly, every day when I'm watching them and when we're together, like we don't even think about that stuff anymore. It's just part of our lives and we've adapted and, you know, still adapting. And I mean, there's still struggles and like I mentioned that anxiety. Um, but really it's not even, a factor anymore. Like we just, you know, he's part of our life and we just do what we do. And, uh, I feel like we're pretty successful at it, you know, (laughs) still learning. Did your view on humanity change at all when you had a kid? It did. It did quite a bit, actually. Um, I started noticing things I didn't notice before. Um, I'm still trying to figure out a lot of things. It's very surreal. It's very surreal every day when you see a little person that's like learning, everything based on what you're teaching them. That's a very surreal experience. But yeah, my view of humanity has changed quite a bit because now I feel like it's not just about me. It's about, you know, bringing, and being that he's a boy as well, bringing a, uh, another male into the world that, you know, doesn't have all these toxic, these toxic ideals that we kind of grew up with. You know, yeah. you were talking about, you know, how we're kind of taught to, you know, not really show our emotions that's a terrible that's a terrible way of going about things because I mean we bottle all that up and it causes a lot of issues like we were talking about you know uh, you mentioned school shootings and rape and stuff like that like I mean that's a direct I feel like that's a direct correlation to bottling up emotions and not talking about it and absolutely there's know. there's very few ex, uh, healthy ways healthy expressions of masculinity you True. know what I mean in, mm-hmm. in this world there, there's a few positive role like role models, male role models that I would say that are, are good examples of uh, positive masculinity. Someone like The Rock. Yeah. Or yeah. someone like Terry Crews, Joe Rogan. Sure. Any of them. They're all bald. I don't know if that's a, co- a correlation or not. <laughs> that's where it's at. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but th- there's very few men in this world that uh, we look at that we're able to say, you know, this guy has it figured out. Right. Right. Um, because no one really has it figured out, but I think that the first step to embracing that is realizing, okay, no one really has it figured out. Because now that I'm about to be 30, I'm like, wow, I'm kind of settled into adulthood now. It's like I have an idea of being an adult and what, mm-hmm. what I thought it was versus what it actually is. Sure. And it turns out no one has any fucking idea at all. Not at all. Not at all. We're literally creating our own way. And I mean... You think about, like, our parents and stuff like that. They lived in a very different world. Things are so different now. Like, we're figuring this out on our own. Like, uh, people's ideals are different. Uh, Finances are different. Like, I mean, you think about it. Like, with my parents, um, you know, my parents aren't the best example. My wife's parents, um, you know, they were able to buy a house and, you know, live that American dream, whatever that is, like, early on. Like, I I think that's very different for us. Like, Yeah, absolutely. um, what I'm curious to see is millennials starting to age now. Because mm-hmm. we're no, like, the weird experience that I think I've really started to have is when I go to play a gig now, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to be the oldest person, not only <laughs> playing on stage, yeah. but the oldest person there at the show. Dude, I, oh man, I feel you there. Absolutely. <laughs> Have you ever gone to a show, like just gone to a show, like to a friend show or something like that, and and realize that that you're the the oldest person? Yes. You feel like the oldest person in the room. <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I played a show with Violet Moons a couple weeks ago, a house show, uh-huh. and it was all these Belmont kids, so it, uh, either in college or freshly graduated. Yeah, so the average age there was probably like twenty two. Yeah, you know, and here I am, I'm. I'm just thinking, wow, this is so crazy. I remember what this life was like. I mean, I didn't go to college or anything like that, but I remember being at a show surrounded by everybody who was my age, and we had we were just drinking and smoking weed and doing all that shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, all that stuff is fun and everything like that. But now I'm just like, eh, I'm I'm not really interested in it the way I used to be. Totally, I get that. I get that. Yeah, it's a very different thing. Um, <laughs> Uh, of course, with me, like I work, uh, I run sound on Broadway, so I'm kind of around a lot of that all the time. Um, but yeah, I, I do look at things quite a bit differently, especially now, you know, being a family man, like sometimes I feel like I'm living two lives. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's very strange. 
Well, um, as musicians too, we're in this, uh, both in bad and good ways, as a, a state of arrested development. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like sure. I've been wanting to be a musician and that's all I've ever wanted to do since I was 14 years old. Mm-hmm. That's it. Sure. Yeah. So Same. like uh, that deep love that I still have for music is, is still there. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm, it's like you start to refine your shit, you know, and I right. mean, you start right. to really see like, okay, that was a fuck up or I'm not going to fuck with that kind of person again because no good can come from it. And, and it's like that in every aspect of, of trying to have a quote unquote career. Right. But it's really just the journey. It's just the journey. Absolutely. I feel the same way. Sometimes I feel a bit jaded because I think about things like that. Like, you know, you'll come across somebody, um, uh, that has an opportunity or you have the opportunity to work with somebody and it's just like, oh, God, I know where this is going to lead. Yeah. Like, I know where this is going to lead. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you're so jaded. Like, just just go for it. But no, I mean, I, I think that's smart. I think that's just part of growth. And like you said, that's part of, you know, building your career and just kind of growing within your career and like what it is that you want to do, you know. Um, I, I always uh, have felt a, a kinship with, with, with people who do trades Mm-hmm. Um, like welders and carpenters and shit like that. Cause really I feel like, you know, music is similar in a way. Cause we're, we're journeymen. Sure. We're journeyman musicians. Yeah. Yeah. And we're just trying to get good at our craft. Right. Right. That's so true. When I first moved here, I was super naive and it was that thing that we were talking about at the beginning of like, um, being super successful, you know, making a million dollars by 30, uh, but yeah, bullshit. as you get older, it is. It's total bullshit. It's a sales pitch that's you know put on you by people that just want to make money off of you and just exploit you. Um, but you know, as you get older and you've done it a long time, you realize it's a long game, man. Like it's just you know, it's a journey. Like you said, you're a journeyman. You're constantly honing your craft. You're getting it better. What it, what you're doing, you learn more and more about yourself. Um, I read a great book, and I, I've always gone back to it. It's called Zen Guitar, and it's written by a guy who has samurai blood in his lineage. And so <clears throat> the whole book, he kind of takes being a musician and learning to play guitar from the outlook of like a samurai. And, you know, with the samurai, it was constantly about honor and it was constantly about honing that craft. And a lot of, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of like holding back and, you know, just little by little getting better and better at what you're doing. And one of the things that really stuck out to me is like, you know, once you feel like you've reached the top of the mountain and that, you know, you can't get any higher than where you are, then you just need to go all the way back to the bottom and start again. Yes. You know, you need to start back at the basics and start over again because, you know, you're in the wrong mindset at that point. And that's always stuck with me. Well, that's um, what really the, the Matthew McConaughey book is. He talks about green lights in life. Mm-hmm where you're, you're catching every light, things are going your way. But he also talks about red lights and yellow lights and how you have to turn them into a green light. Yes. So like going back, you're up at that peak and you feel like you've achieved everything you can at a certain level. Right. Your new green light is going all the way back down and finding a new mountain to climb. Yes, go. absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're never done learning. You're never done growing. I I feel you know, <laughs> you can be a hundred years old and still learning something. You're you're growing till the day you die. Yeah, this existence is weird as fuck. Honestly, it is like nobody has any idea what's going on. People are fighting. They're dying for oil. They're dying for heroin pills. All this shit. Yeah, and it's all just a distraction from the fact that one day we all meet our end and we don't know what really happens after that. People theorize. And I think that that the spiritual aspect of it, cause it's like, I'm not a religious person, you know, like I think there's a lot of positive things about religion and I'll, I'll listen to what they have to say and I'll try and draw from it. Mm-hmm. But it, it, you really have to decide like along the way, what works for you and what doesn't work. That's for true. You. That's true. I feel like, you know, and I'm not a religious person as either. Um, I grew up in the church. My dad is a Methodist minister. Um, to this day, he still is. And so that turned me off a lot to, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, 
organized religion, I suppose. But as far as spirituality, I feel like you can see it in many, many different things. You know, I see it playing shows. You're watching this great band and everybody's locked in and the audience is locked in with them. That's a very spiritual thing. It's a very powerful thing. And I've felt that on stage as well, where, you know, your feet really aren't touching the ground and you kind of quit thinking, you know. You've got all the techniques. You've got all the muscle memory. You you, you remember your songs. But if if it's really, really good and you're having a really good night, like kind of all that melts away and you're just being. And to me, that's a very spiritual thing. Um, And I think that, you know, with any craft that you're doing, I think you can feel that way, you know, if you're really, if you're really into it, if that's what you really want to be doing. Like, what was it that turned you off about religion and going to church? A lot of the hypocrisy of it, you know, you would see, you would see people and, you know, I'll I'll include my, my dad in this, you know, like you'll, you, you see one thing on Sunday and you hear this sermon that, you know, has been being written and rehearsed all week long and, uh, you know, speaking it on Sunday, but then not seeing the actions, not, I, I guess not walking the walk, you know, um, and just kind of seeing that over and over a lot of judgment in the church experiences that I've had. And, you know, to me, knowing the little bit I know about the Bible, I mean, one of the first things is not, you know, not judging. Like, you're not the judge. Like, there's only one true judge. And just seeing, you know, all the judgment and uh, all the um, exclusivity, I suppose, of the church just really turned me off. Because, you know, it also sheltered me from the world at large. I left uh, my home when I was 19, and I moved to St. Louis, and I've lived in cities every, ever since. And, you know, you see a much bigger world coming from a small place and then moving into a major city um, and just reali- realizing there's so much more and there's so much that, you know, you were either told was a negative thing or you didn't know about it all. And that really turned me off. I was like, what? I feel like the world has so much to offer and just humanity has so much to offer. Why... Why are we sheltered from that? Like, I, I don't know. That's just kind of what turned me off to it. What, uh, I have two questions. Mm-hmm. So what, what was it like when you went out in the world? Like, what were you seeing where you were like, it's not what I thought it was. And two, my second question, maybe answer this one first. What are the tenets of like the Methodist church and how does it differ from other sects of Christianity? So the Methodist church is actually kind of liberal compared to like, say Southern Baptist or Pentecost or something like that. Um, where I grew up, uh, I went to school in a very big Roman Catholic community, um, a lot of Italians there. Uh, so I, I, I know a little bit about that, and my dad was born Catholic and left that church. Um, Interesting. So I don't know too much about Catholicism other than it's very, very strict, and there's a very certain... You know, it's shame and guilt based. I very shame grew, and guilt grew based. Grew up Catholic. Okay, so, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So the Methodist Church is is a uh, liberal, but I would say that it's a uh, it's similar to Catholicism. There's still a lot of shame. There's still a lot of gloom and doom that goes into that. Um, is it fire and brimstoney? My. Uh, that's the thing. Like with the Methodist, uh, it's just kind of a mixed bag. It really depends on the minister that is preaching at any certain time. Interesting. Because, you know, over the years, I I was in the church uh, from probably the uh, age of five onwards because um, my parents weren't very religious people when I was first born, um, and they kind of got into that. Um, <clears throat> so the first couple pastors that I remember weren't that at all. They were very pacifist and very, you know, accepting. But then as I got older, you know, I did come across quite a few fire and brimstone pastors. And then when I was in high school, my best friend was actually Pentecost. And going to those churches, you've got people running up and down the aisles. You've got people speaking in tongues. You've got people, you know, it was almost like going to a circus compared to the, you know, Methodist, which is very much like, the Catholic church and is, it's, it's very conserved. Everybody just kind of sits down and, you know, amen. They read the scriptures and stuff like that. It's very uh, conservative. So, you know, as I got older, I started seeing different things like that. And like, uh, yeah, there was a lot of fire and brimstone preachers. Um, my wife and I actually tried a few churches when we moved here, um, non-denominational and things like that, just to kind of see, um, 
because we're always searching, like you yeah. said, you know, we're always searching and always looking for growth. So we, we looked into a few churches when we first moved here and that's what we always ran across. Like we would love it for the first couple weeks. We'd love it. Like most of the places we went had like a great band and everything was oh, like yeah, music based. Yeah. 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 Of course. So like there'd be all these like guys that were mostly that session like players. Reba's band. Yeah, exactly. McGraw- exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. These great bands. And so we would really like buy into it and get into it. And, you know, start getting to know some of the people and uh, realizing that we didn't have much in common with these people and there wasn't much attempt on their part to, you know, level with us. It was more like, hey, you need to, you know, you need to come with us. You need to be with us. and So you can be saved. Exactly. Exactly. And that's been something that's always bothered me. Like, I mean, I guess I should be flattered that you want to save me, but at the same time, it's like, but is it know. really for you or is it for them? It's for them. It's absolutely for them. Yeah. And that's one of the things that turned me off to this uh, the Methodist church and everything in general. It's definitely for them because it straight up says in the sermons that, you know, they're preaching. It's like, you know, you need to be you need to save people and add to the flock in order to get your key to heaven. Like, and that's just always something that stuck with me. And it's a very selfish thing. Like yeah. that's very selfish. It's not about me. Like, well, it's weaponized spirituality. It's weaponized spirituality. Um, and like I said, you know, as I went to more shows and as I've grown older, and not even to shows. Like when I lived in St. Louis, I worked at a liquor store downtown, and downtown St. Louis is a sketch place, man. Um, it closes down at six, and you don't want to be down there after six o'clock because you you know you might get robbed. Um, bad things can happen, and you know I. I met a lot of homeless people while I was down there and you would see spirituality just in, you know, a man that has absolutely nothing lending a helping hand to somebody like to me, that was a very spiritual thing. It's like you, you you have absolutely nothing and you're doing this selfless act, you know, for somebody else. And it just, uh, it changed my perspective on a lot of things. So on a lot of, of things. Uh, circling back to what uh, my my first question, yes. it was super convoluted. Yeah. But so, what was that experience like of leaving the church and then going out and actually seeing the world? Had you always daydreamed of that? Or uh, it was it, for me, it was kind of a gradual thing because I started really, you know, questioning a lot of things about uh, the church and Christianity when I was in high school. Um, freshman year, I was still pretty conservative and pretty pretty green, didn't really, you know, know much about anything at all. I was pretty sheltered, but I had a group of friends in high school that I met, I guess my, my sophomore year, I was in a high school band and man, I can't say enough great things about being in a high school band. Like it was fantastic because, you know, everybody's learning music together and you really start seeing all kinds of different personalities and stuff like that. Um, so the group that I was in didn't really we weren't really a clique. Like we hung out with the jocks and we hung out with like the goth kids and the nerdy kids and, you know, school, small school. There was 800 kids total in my high school. Um, so, you know, we all kind of know each other. We all kind of partied together. And, uh, there was a lot of them that were incredibly smart because a lot of them, uh, the town that was adjacent to us, uh, Carbondale was a college town is SIUC. So a lot of people from Chicago, a lot of people from um, St. Louis and Nashville and all the cities that were just kind of around that area went there. And so there were a lot of college professors that had kids that I went to school with. So they kind of had this um, heightened sense, I guess, of enlightenment enlightenment because, uh, you know, of what their parents did. A lot of them already knew lots of things about philosophy and like, you know, kind of higher education, you know, than what we were getting at our small high school. So that kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things. We did a lot of reading. We did a lot of, you know, writing at that point. Um, So, you know, I started questioning things pretty early on. And I remember the big thing that I did that really, like, turned the page for me is (laughs) we gave a, in my speech class, senior year, we gave a uh, a debate against this, like, born-again Christian girl whose dad was also a minister, and it was uh, about the, <laughs> this was really stupid now that I think back on it, but it, the, the sham of Christianity, like, you know, the con game of Christianity. So this was our, this was our whole thing about how, like, everything we'd ever learned was, was just a lie. And uh, 
<laughs> this was our argument. And we went up against this girl that basically just got up and like gave a testimony about how she'd been saved and like how she'd, you know, been washed in the blood of Jesus. And like our argument was against that. And the problem was is the debate teacher was also a born again Christian that went to the same church. So like we got we got an F on the project. Like we we totally oh, yeah. failed. Like there was we had no chance of, you know, winning that debate. Not or... a snowball's <laughs> chance in hell. Yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. But yeah, that was like the big turning point. Cause I remember my parents being very, very supportive and like my dad even helping me, like helping me along the way. So that's something I'll never forget. Like, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like I became an outcast at home by doing this. Like, my parents really helped me. They didn't quite understand it. He helped you prep for the debate? He helped me prep for the debate. He helped me along. Like, and, you know, if I, if I you know, said stuff that was a little crazy, like, he would, you know, crazy in his mind, he would, uh, you know, he'd check me on it. And we had, like, little debates at home about it. Um, but, yeah, I'll never forget that. Like, them being very supportive of a viewpoint that they really didn't agree with like at all like it went against their fabric altogether but I never felt like um they were shunning me or anything like that so I will say that that uh you know that's that pretty was interesting that so was interesting yeah <laughs> you were basically bouncing these ideas off your your minister father of why Christianity was a sham and they were completely agnostic ideas like they went completely against like what he was saying and again when I think back on it like you know that was another reason that I kind of got turned off from it like I guess you can look at it in two ways because I mean he was being very accepting and I mean acceptance is you know the one of the strong core ideals I think of Christianity I think acceptance is one of the big things but at the same time it's like you know at no point that he tried to sway to sway my decision and he actually agreed with a few of the things that I said but you know his sermons weren't you know reflecting that like he was still preaching the same thing and after a while I started just getting kind of feeling like, you know, you're just kind of calling this in. Like, you went to school for this, you went to school for theology, and you're just kind of writing these sermons based off of, you know, what you learned and, like, what you've researched, which, to me, that's no different than, like, going to college, like, doing a lecture. And just kind of phoning it in. And just kind of phoning it in, like, you know, and you've got all these people coming, and they're expecting to hear a certain thing, and that's what they do. Um, And I just you know, when you look at it like that, like there really is no spirituality. It's just kind of something that you do. It's like a routine you do on Sunday. Like you go in and it's like, well, I'm going to try and get this sermon done before noon because that's when the football game starts. And it's just like, you know, a spiritual thing, I want to be in it. Like I mentioned music, like when, when you feel that spirituality on stage, like, I mean, you're in it. You're in it. You're not just phoning it in. Like, you can always tell when a band's just phoning it in. Like, oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> well, I think you have to figure out, and I guess we've figured this out through music, whatever that divine thing is, because I, I still stand by pretty strongly that music is the sound of the divine. Absolutely. What, whatever is out there, that unexplainable thing that no one knows what it is or you can't put your finger on it, you hear it in a song and you say that that's exactly how I feel. Right. And there's many different things that can get you there. It can be a movie, any, any form of art, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Painting, a book, whatever it is. Right. But I think my, my favorite stuff is whenever someone is like, yeah, I, uh, I tapped into whatever that thing was. It already existed. Like I'm, I'm, I have this book called Catching the Big Fish by David Lynch. He's mm-hmm. the director. Mm-hmm. I've talked about it a ton on the podcast. People are probably annoyed hearing me talk about this now. But uh, he talks about that. He's like, all your ideas already exist. And basically, through the act of meditation, uh, you can fish for those ideas. Sometimes sure. it's little fish. Sometimes it's big fish. Sometimes you don't catch anything at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I really like that. I like that, too. Um one of the podcasts that I'm really into is uh, Rick Rubin's podcast. Um, oh, yeah. He is a Zen guy. He, I mean, he is. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and, a lot, you know, you, you hear about bands that kind of complain about his process, um, but it's, it's, it's a completely Zen process. Like, you know, it's the, it's the producer that's there and his presence is there, but, you know, he's staying completely out of their creative process. Um, 
But no, um, anyway, like on, uh, on his podcast, I remember he had Brittany Howard on there. And uh, she mentioned something about being sent to song. And I've heard lots of songwriters say that before. Like, well, when I was sent this song. And I, yeah, I, I think that's kind of a thing. Because sometimes when you write a song, you don't really know where it's coming from until after it's done, you know. Um, and every song is different. Every song's different. That is true. Like, for me, I'll write a song, and there's there's songs that I've written quickly, and there's, like, I just finished this one song where I've been chipping away at it since last December, mm-hmm. you know, and I just finally got to a place where I feel like I finished it. Sure. But it's almost like you have to mine for those ideas in order for them to be fully realized, whatever it is. Right, right, yeah. I agree with that, and I mean, there's... There's certain songs that I've written that I do I do feel have just like kind of come to me just like that. But yeah, most of the time you do have to kind of mine for those ideas. You got to dig for them. You got to the dig for them. Bolt of lightning is rare, right? It, it's very rare. It's very rare when it when it hits you. It's a very special thing um, that I think shouldn't be taken for granted. But yeah, you do have to mine for those ideas most of the time. I feel like um, Cheryl Crow said something once. Uh, that always stuck with me as well, that sometimes you have to, you know, dig into places that you don't necessarily want to go. You have to mine for ideas in places you don't necessarily want to go to, like, finish a song. Um, and I think that that can be harmful sometimes, too, because I think sometimes you can dig a little too deep. Um, but I don't know. Is it harmful? Like, maybe, you know, if you're having to dig for something and that finishes the song, maybe that's something that needed to come out. Like, we were talking about yes. things that you resent, um, you know, things that are holding you back, maybe digging deep and, you know, finding a way to get that out, to give an outlet to that thought is a way of letting it go, you know? I can think back to this one particular song that I wrote. I was probably maybe two years into my Nashville journey. Mm-hmm. And I had written this song, and it was really like a criticism of myself and just the the scene in East Nashville, you know what I mean? Because it's something that I feel split at. There's there's so many great artists, so many great bands. There's a lot of bullshit that comes with it too. There's a lot of bullshit. Yeah. Um, of just people befriending you, you don't know why. You know, uh, do they actually like me? What whatever? All all the questions that we have that right. keep us up at night. Right. And I wrote this whole song about that, and it was really uh, it was really toxic. You know, mm-hmm. the things I was I was saying, although I feel it was 100% true. Yeah. You know, sure. I, I feel it was 100% true. But it, it was, uh, usually I feel like through song, I could find the best version of myself, you mm-hmm. know, like the, the fully real. It's kind of like what Matthew McConaughey was talking about. Right. Um, but this was the only song that I've ever written where I felt like this is some of the worst aspects of myself. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. I get that. Yeah. Um, and I, too, have songs like that. Some of them have never seen the light of day, yeah. um, you know, but I guess it was good to get that out, to have that outlet for those thoughts. Yes. Um, yeah. 100%. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's funny uh, thinking of it now, because it's like a lot of the songs that I, I feel like I write, uh, they're pretty dark, you know, like... And I think it's because now I don't feel so much darkness in my day-to-day right, life. Right, right. So it's like when I let that out, uh, it, it's like this untapped thing that I'm trying to, to get out of me. Sure, sure. The beast. Yeah. It's within all of us. We all have a dark side. Absolutely. And some people, you know, I, I really I don't trust anyone who doesn't know what their dark side is or their, the darker aspects of their personality. Well, I think most people are lying when they say that. Like, I, I think they do. Maybe they're in denial. Like, yes. you know, I, I think everybody knows what that dark side is because, I mean, you know, you're not with other people all the time. You, you, you have to be with your thoughts at some point in your life, you know, and uh, you always have that inner monologue. Like, I feel like everybody knows what their dark side is. It's just maybe they're in denial about it. It's a hard pill to swallow once you figure it out. Like, it's a really tough pill to swallow. Um, Yeah, and, you know, with Sheryl Crow talking about, you know, sometimes you dig up things you don't want to dig up. I mean, yeah, it's a tough 
pill to swallow when you have a self-realization about yourself and you don't really like it. Like you don't really Something like that ugly. person that came out. Yeah. Um, but it's necessary. Like it's necessary to get it out there. Um, because like we said, you don't want to bottle anything up. You don't want to bottle emotions up because that's just horrible. Recipe that's toxic. for disaster. For Absolutely. Me. Ticking time bomb. You yeah. know, it's only a matter of time before I start doing shit or saying shit that's out of my moral comfort zone. Sure. Not that I'm a bad person, but I, I, I try to live by like a moral code. Yeah. And I think I live with so much dissonance in my 20s just because you, like your early 20s, you, you, you have no fucking idea. Like you're not a fully developed adult. You're still figuring no. everything out. You're still finding yourself. Yeah. You know? And, like, I think about the times that I went against, like, who I was morally. And in my mid-20s, I think I really fucking overcorrected and had a, uh, I almost weaponized that, you know? Yeah. Like, we- like, weaponized my own moral sense. Sure, of, sure. Of right and wrong. Because it's like, I've made, I can think back to all the mistakes I've made. Like I love writing them out. I love, mm-hmm. but to a certain point, uh, I'm just like beating myself up. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, sure. Sure, 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 sure. Cause I'm so afraid of becoming someone who, uh, isn't moral. Yeah. And doesn't live by some kind of code. Right. Cause I fear what happens when you don't or when I don't. Yeah. I understand that. And I mean, there's so many distractions and there's so many, you know, voices in your ear telling you what that moral code should be. I mean, you look just anywhere and <laughs> I mean, it's constant now with the, you know, the age of social media, it's constant. It's constant of like, what is right? What is wrong? I mean, you, you write your own moral code. That's what it comes down to. Like you, you, you know, what's right and wrong in your gut. Like you, I, I follow my gut a lot. Like I have to, I have to uh, check myself every now and again to where if something doesn't feel right, um, and it can be something very, very small. Like, but if something doesn't feel right, um, and you feel like you're having to force yourself to follow through with that, I don't know. Maybe it's something you should step back and you know, kind of check yourself on. Well, um, it's it's a red light. It's a red light. Yeah, for sure, for sure. There's something wrong with that decision. You might not know exactly what it is, but you know, if your gut is making you feel you know hesitant about doing that, maybe you should step back. The icky um, feeling. The icky feeling, yeah. Totally. Totally. Where something's not checking out. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I can look back on all the times where I really felt like I was losing it in life, and you can trace it back to that that feeling. Yeah. Of not being spiritually aligned. You know, and I, I, I was using the word moral a lot but uh, maybe a word like spiritual would be better for something like that sure yeah because it's like we all share this experience and it's so easy to be like i had a moment today i had a moment today where i got super fucking pissed off because i uh so i drive for uber and lyft i'm a Uh ride share driver gotcha and i go to pick up this guy and um i drove past him because he was standing at the bus stop Mm mm-hmm I had no idea it was him. How am I supposed to know? Like at the bus stop, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so I turn around, I start to flip over, and he immediately just starts like getting angry. Like I can see it like in his body language. He's throwing his arms up in oh, the air, Lord. he's yelling at me, and he's about to get in my fucking car. Yeah. So yeah. I had to peace out because like I don't normally cancel on people, but if there's a situation like that, like I just kept driving. I'm like Right. In the moment, I'm like, fuck this guy. Like, he, he's at this bus stop. He was probably having a bad day. Right. Totally. And totally. I was be, being a, a dick back to him. But I also will say, if that's how our shit was about to start out, then it was not off on the right It foot. probably wasn't going to end well. It wasn't going to um. end well. <laughs> but in that moment, it, it was like staying with me today. Yeah. You know, and I was like, why is this bothering me so much? It makes me feel bad to have to be that way. Sure. To put up that boundary. But sure. sometimes you have to use that discernment in life. You do. And sometimes you have to be a dick. Right. Um, and I think I took a lot of pleasure previously in being a dick and shocking people and dro- sure. dropping the hammer. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, 
something unwielded, it can be completely uh, dangerous. You know, it's like a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you're only supposed to use a nuclear bomb when you absolutely have to. The point is having it and never needing it. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the dark side of that is somebody else has a nuclear bomb, too, and they're ready to drop that motherfucker at any moment. Right. And this guy right. was ready to drop a nuclear bomb. I could tell. Things right. were not going his way. Right. So I had to avoid the situation. I was like, this is not going to be a good situation for either one of us. Right. That makes total sense. I, I too, drove for um, Uber and Lyft for quite a while. I did it full time. So I, I, I completely get that. I had many oh, situations yeah. like that. Um, <laughs> sometimes they did get in the car, and sometimes it was it was absolutely nuts. But, yeah. <laughs> How long did you do it for? Um, I did it for probably eight months. Um, I worked retail. My wife and I both worked retail for about 13 years, um, and we moved to Nashville. I went to school for audio. Um, I did some freelance projects and stuff like that. Went back to retail for a little bit because that's where the money was at, and then just one day we both decided that we weren't going to do that anymore. She went back to school to become a teacher, and I just quit retail all the time. I lasted about two more years just to kind of, while she was in school. And yeah. uh, then after she was out of school, I was like, well, I, I can't do this anymore. Like, you know, this isn't... Soul-killing. This is soul-killing. This isn't fulfilling me. This isn't why we're here. Um, so I started driving for Uber and Lyft um, and focusing on the band. And, uh, yes, yeah, so I did it for about eight months until I picked up a sound gig, and I've done that full-time ever since. But uh, So you're a sound guy on Broadway? Yeah, yeah. So I work for a company that um, owns a couple different venues, and I uh, work at a venue on 3rd Avenue about a half a block from uh, Kid Rocks down there. Um, gotcha. Yep. And it's great. You know, I love it. It's a, it's crazy. Sometimes I really, really hate that scene. Um, just the Broadway scene in general, because it's nothing but super drunk tourists and the most toxic people you could possibly imagine. But I'm also a sound guy. Like I'm not really dealing with those people. I just get to observe a lot of those things. Um, I get to observe a lot of really, really awful things. I get to observe a lot of really amazing things. I work with amazing musicians, very talented people. Um, Hugh G, who's actually on this show that we're doing on Saturday together, um, I met him through that scene. He was doing a writer's round there, and uh, I thought he was really awesome. But yeah, sometimes I really enjoy the chaos. Like, it's a back and forth. Like, <laughs> it's becoming more and more like a, like a mini New York City down there, like with just the amount of hustle and bustle on the weekends and just traffic and loud craziness. And sometimes... I don't want that at all, but then other times I, I just thrive in it. I can't, I can't explain it. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's nice to be in that chaos. Zen anarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's totally anarchy. It's crazy. Like, <laughs> I mean, you never know what's going to happen on any given day. One day somebody might piss off a security guard and he throws, throws them through a window like a saloon in, uh, you know, the 1800s. And I've seen that happen multiple times, <laughs> which is crazy. What's um, the craziest thing you've ever seen down there? The cr- oh, God. Um, the craziest thing I've ever seen down there, I was parking over at the library. So I'm on third Avenue. Um, you have to cross, uh, let's see, the library's on commerce and eighth Avenue, I believe. So you have to cross Broadway and you have to walk through all the crap. So I'm, um, in the alleyway between the Ryman and Tootsie's and I hear like some shuffling around and then I start hearing some moaning. And I'm like, oh, uh, I know that sound. What's going on? And I turn around, and there's a couple butt-ass naked in a trash can. Fucking? Just going to town. Just fucking. Like, aggressively fucking. So I stopped for a second, because I wanted to make sure that everybody was okay. I wanted to make sure that this was a consensual yeah, situation. totally. Because that's something that I've also seen and had to step in multiple times down there. Um, I shit you not. Like, it's, it's crazy. There's no policing. Like, if you see something that's going on down there, you have to step in if it's safe for you to do so. Um, so it was something that I, uh, I stopped for a second, and it didn't take me long to realize that, yes, everything was completely consensual. Everybody wanted um, to be involved that yes, was involved. Yeah. And it was like a 50-year-old couple. They were, they were like oh my God. 50-year-old tourists, like, in this trash can just going to town. What time of like, day was this? This was probably 2.30, 3 a.m., something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, it I was mean, like, that makes sense. Uh, there was that situation, and there was one other um, where I was just standing in the alley, like, having a smoke with this guy. And uh, this 
really well dressed guy, like dressed to the nines, looked like he just like left his law office somewhere. He's walking like he's on a mission, like really, really walking, just eyes straight in front of him. He projectile vomits out in front of him and just walks directly into it. It <laughs> <laughs> just keeps walking. Doesn't stop, doesn't hesitate, just keeps going. Just, just keeps going. And what time was that at? That was at like six. Like uh, six in the evening? Six in the evening, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, driving for Uber, I see so much crazy shit. Most people are pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Like, yeah. and I personally, I don't hate the Bachelorettes. A lot of people in Nashville hate them. I like them. Yeah. They're fun. They're, They're usually excited. really fun. Totally. Um, yeah. They love it here. I mean, there's downsides to it too. Um, but just driving them, I, I, it makes me excited that people are excited about being in our great city. Yeah. Our adoptive home. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so many of us that are just transplants here. Like yeah. there's, you know, I, I find myself kind of bitching about it every now and again, but then, cause I work down there so often, but then I'm like, you know, yeah, it's kind of cool. Like there's so many people that just want to come here just, just to be here. Cause it's like the it city. It's the end place to be. And that's a cool place to be. You know, it's a, uh, we're kind of like in the golden age of that right now. Like I feel like, uh, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a super buzz in Nashville right now. It's, when I moved here, it was a really sleepy place. Like, you know, there was the music scene, but it was very exclusive. It was very exclusive to some very certain scenes, and that still exists. Um, but I feel like it's much broader. It's much bigger. There's more people here. Yes. Um, yeah, no, I, it was already underway by the time I got here. It was, like, right at the beginning of the Golden Age because mm-hmm. I moved here in 2015. Okay, gotcha. At, like, August of 2015 gotcha. was when I first moved here. Uh-huh. And... You know, I was working, I had a job at a logistics company that was right down on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was a place that was right above uh, the underground. Is that is that the Gavin DeGraw bar? Uh, what is that, Nashville Underground down there? Yeah, is it Nashville uh, next Un- to Acme Feed and Seed yep. down there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we were right above that. So every day I would be down on Broadway, just moved here from Maine, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. I lived in a small town. I lived a lot of other places. Um, cause I lived in like Florida and all that. So I've, I've got to see a lot of the country, but it was really cool to, to see this city starting to grow and people be excited to like be here. Right. 2015 is when I remember it really blowing up. Like that's when it kind of exploded. Like, yeah, for sure. For sure. I think it was because of that Nashville TV show. Yeah. I remember, uh, uh when I was at SAE, they used to shoot like over in uh, cuz it's on music row so they used to shoot over there all the time and i remember seeing a lot of the shoots it was it was cool for sure i never really liked that show <laughs> no <laughs> i i always thought it was it was so like when, dramatized when, yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> so on saturday this saturday november 13th we yes. are playing a show yes at the dive motel uh-huh which I've never played there before. Have you played there? So I've never played there before either. Now, I've been there. I've had some drinks there before. Um, we did a photo shoot that was kind of like promo for this. But it is a very cool place. Um, a very eclectic place. Like, I don't really find that there's anything in Nashville quite like it. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be a really good time. Um, kind of like a pool party in November. I deal. heard... Uh... That was the first place that Hank Williams Sr. stayed when he came to Nashville. I did not know that. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, and the, the first night, they, they were doing like a soft opening, and I dropped someone off there who works at uh, a publication that I won't name because I don't like the publication. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> but there's a, there's a few. I'm sure you yeah. can figure it out. But um, he, uh, he was like, look over, that's Jack White in his Tesla. And Jack White was speeding off into the night on Dickerson Pike of all places oh, in his man. Tesla. Love he had it. just left the soft opening of this place. Wow. So I saw ja- Jack White in his Tesla speed off. Well, you see, that, that says it all right there. <laughs> that and the Hank Williams story. I love it. That's the Nashville experience. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Where can people find you at? Like, uh, what, what's all your social media? Where's your music at? All that good shit. Yeah, so um, we're the Dirty Delusions. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook. Um, we have a website, too. If you just type Google the Dirty Delusions, that'll pop up. Um, and then we're on Spotify, Apple Music, uh, Tidal. Pretty much everywhere, everywhere that you can stream music, we're there. Um, we've got videos on YouTube. 
We're everywhere, man. We got it all, all over the place. Do you have your own social media that you post on and all that shit, too? Um, I, I do. Not very often, though. You can find me on Instagram just at Aaron Billiot. It's mostly uh, videos and photos of my kid <laughs> and me doing things with my child, Crosby. Um, I don't post to it very often, but if you want to see some cute baby, kid, baby photos, that's the place to go. <laughs> so the new single, Alone, is yes. now streaming. It's now streaming. All those places you can find it, and you are about to hear it right now. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Searching 